morning we are in Matthew 7. We're still in the Sermon on the Mount. And that can be found on page number 1,500 and probably five-ish. I'm not quite there yet. Exactly, 1,505. That was a pretty good guess. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Jesus, continuing to teach his disciples on the Sermon on the Mount, goes on to say, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and we ask that you would open the eyes of our heart to understand your word. Help us to know what it is to sinfully judge one another that we might be moved by your grace to strive to take the log out of our eye, that we might see clearly to remove the speck in our brother's eye. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, One commentator I read this week uh, pointed out uh, that there used to be a time in our society, meaning like Western society, when the most popular and well-known verse was John 3.16 which I'm sure most, if not all of us know, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. And then he goes on to say that uh, the time we're living in our society now, actually, the most popular verse, the most well-known verse is the one that we just read. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. This is because Christians confess that the Bible contains the very words of God. We believe God has revealed himself in Scripture. We believe that God has told us who he is. He's told us who we are. He's told us what he requires of us. We believe that God has given us the standard for right belief and right behavior, and those standards are written down for everyone to see. And as Christians, we come here and we regularly remind ourselves of those standards, and we also remind ourselves of his infinite grace and mercy to forgive us for our failure to meet that standard. But how should we navigate Knowing God's standard in a world that doesn't. 
So if someone is a Buddhist and we tell him that the Bible says Buddhist beliefs cannot save him and that Jesus is the only way to God, he might feel judged by us. And he might say to us, doesn't your Bible say that you can't judge me? If you know your coworker is cheating on her husband with another coworker, let's say she knows you're a Christian, imagine her asking you, do you think what I'm doing is wrong? And then you say, if I'm being honest, I do. I do think it's wrong. And then she says, but I thought you weren't supposed to judge me. You see, when our world hears do not judge, the world thinks that means we are not ever supposed to evaluate the rightness or the wrongness of someone else's beliefs or behavior. This is because our culture thinks there is no way anyone can know religious truth. No one can know for sure what is the right way to God. So you can't possibly judge the rightness or the wrongness of how I think I can come to God. Our culture also thinks there's no such thing as revealed morality. They don't believe God has said, you shall or you shall not live in a certain way. They think it's up to society to decide together what morality is. And so when we come in with this debatable perspective from a Bible written down by men long ago, it seems archaic and judgmental. So when the world hears Jesus say, do not judge, they think that Jesus means that he's forbidding his followers to tell anyone the standard for true belief and right behavior. But is that what Jesus means here? Is Jesus forbidding us from ever evaluating other people's beliefs or behavior? So if we're gonna answer that question this morning, we need to know the kind of judgment Jesus forbids, and that's it. This is a one-point sermon this morning. Uh, and so at the end of our time together, my hope and my prayer is that we will all understand the kind of judgment Jesus is telling us we must avoid, and we need to understand this so that we can properly and lovingly evaluate other people's beliefs and behaviors so that we might lead them to Christ. So what does Jesus mean when he tells us, do not judge or you too will be judged? Is Jesus forbidding Christians from evaluating the rightness or the wrongness of someone else's beliefs and behaviors? And the answer is no. Uh, first of all, that would be very strange. It would be a very strange thing to say at this point in the book of Matthew. Remember, he is named Jesus because he will save his people from their sins which means there is such a thing as sin, and we need someone to come and save us from it. When he begins his teaching ministry, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. 
And repentance requires changing our mind about what we believe and how we are behaving. Repentance requires us to accept that Jesus is the one who can tell us what is the right thing to believe and what is the proper way to behave. The first two chapters of the Sermon on the Mount has been one long teaching where Jesus is explaining what we are to believe and how we are to behave as citizens of his kingdom. He expects us to evaluate our own lives in light of this teaching and then he expects us to repent of our failure to live this way and to come running to him for more of his infinite grace. We are to apply this standard to ourselves and it seems we are to apply this standard to everyone who is or who wants to be a part of the kingdom because this is what kingdom citizens are supposed to be like. Now, what makes us a kingdom citizen is not our ability to keep the standard. What makes us a kingdom citizen is repentance and faith in the one who has kept the standard. But the standard remains. Later in our own passage, Jesus says this. He says, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye. So first, apply the standard to yourself. Why? Why? And then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. One of the main reasons Jesus calls us to honestly and humbly pursue holiness in our own life is so we can become the kind of people who can rightly evaluate the rightness and the wrongness of our brother's beliefs and behaviors and then help them remove the speck from their eye. This is how we teach them to obey all that he has commanded. The very next verse includes another clear evaluation. Jesus says, Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. So in order to follow this teaching, we have to evaluate who is a dog and who is a pig and whether or not we should offer them the sacred thing that we have. Jesus says there may come a time when someone so fully rejects the free offer of the gospel that it is no longer wise to continue offering them the gospel. This is a very difficult place to come to. But in order to come to this place, we have to evaluate. Later in chapter 7, Jesus says, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. So in order to follow this verse, we have to know what Jesus says we're supposed to believe and how those beliefs will shape our behavior so that we can recognize someone claiming to be a teacher who doesn't have that same fruit. That's the only way we can evaluate whether or not someone is a false teacher. Jesus is saying that if their beliefs or behavior is different then what he has just got done telling us a kingdom citizen is like, then we can know 
that they are false teachers. This also requires us to evaluate the rightness or the wrongness of their belief and behavior. Okay. So if Jesus is not forbidding us to evaluate the rightness and the wrongness of other people's beliefs or behavior, what is he forbidding here? And the answer is this. Jesus is forbidding us to judge other people from a place of moral superiority. Jesus is forbidding us to evaluate someone else's beliefs and behaviors and then to determine that we have performed or are performing better than them. Where we look down upon them because we're not like them. The definition of the word translated judge here in this verse is this. It's to pass an unfavorable judgment upon, criticize, find fault with, condemn. The word translated judge here is the Greek word krino, and it has a pretty wide range of meaning. It can mean simply to decide or to prefer one option over another. So if I like peach yogurt better than blueberry yogurt, I could legitimately say that I have judged the peach yogurt to be better than the blueberry yogurt, which, by the way, I do believe that. But, but there's no moral superiority at all involved in that kind of judgment. It's simply a preference or a decision. Paul uses the word this way in Titus 3.12 when he says this. He says, As soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis because I have decided to winter there. So that word translated decided is also the Greek word krino. But here it just means to choose one option over another. Paul judged it preferable for whatever reason to spend winter in Nicopolis. There's no moral right or wrong there, but there is a kind of judgment. But the question is this. Is it really possible to evaluate the rightness or the wrongness of someone else's beliefs or behaviors without putting ourselves in the place of moral superiority? Right? We just saw it's possible to judge in some sense without moral superiority. But is it possible to evaluate other people's beliefs and behaviors without moral superiority? And the answer is yes. Let me give you an example. Imagine you are a boss. You have an employee who's been late to work three days in a row. The employee handbook dictates that when somebody's been late to work for three days, you are required to write them up and put a warning into their employee file, okay? In this case, you would be judging this employee because you are evaluating the rightness or the wrongness of his behavior. And if, if he then continued to come to work late, Eventually, you would have to condemn him and sentence him to no longer being an employee of the company. Notice in this example, you are not judging yourself to be morally superior than him. You're simply judging 
that he has failed to meet the standard as an employee of that company, and you are applying the consequence for that failure. And if you didn't evaluate this employee and apply the consequence for his failure, you would actually be failing to do your job. And all of this can be done without ever thinking that you are morally superior to this man. Now, imagine the same scenario. You're dealing with an employee who's late to work. What would it look like to cross the line into judgmentalism and moral superiority? Well, it would be very easy. As soon as we think to ourselves, look at this guy. He's so lazy and disorganized. Who can live like that? Immediately, we have now judged him, and we believe we're morally superior to him. Do you see the difference? In the first situation, we are merely performing our role as his boss and applying the law fairly based on his choices. And in the second, all of a sudden, we're better than him. We've judged him as being morally inferior to us. Not only are we firing him, but people like that don't deserve to be here. But in the first scenario, we're firing him because we have to. Otherwise, we would not be doing our job. And truthfully, we wouldn't be loving him well. It's actually loving for this man to experience the consequences of his choices. It's hard for us to be the ones to enforce those consequences, especially if we genuinely love that person. Right? We could be firing him with tears streaming down our face because we love him so much and we're just so sorry that he made the decision that he made. But in the second scenario, we're firing him because he's beneath us and we're happy to see him go. He's just getting what he deserves. Do you see the difference? Do you see how it is possible to evaluate someone else's beliefs and behaviors, and if it's your responsibility to even go so far as condemning and sentencing that person for the consequences of that behavior, do you see how it's possible to do that without thinking that we're better than them? And actually, sometimes it's necessary to do that. This is how a civil judge should truly judge. Somebody who is a judge in a court in San Joaquin County, and he is sentencing criminals, he should do it with sadness, knowing that if it weren't for the grace of God, he would be in that same situation. And he should be sentencing them with the desire that the consequences of these actions would lead to restoration and rehabilitation. Let me give you an example of this from the scriptures. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul's dealing with a situation in the church at Corinth where a man has committed sexual immorality with his um, stepmother. Right? And as soon as we hear that, our judgmental hearts think, ew, gross. Who would do that? 
And Paul says this, he says, For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit, as one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who's been doing this. So Paul is judging this man. Paul is not saying, though, that he is somehow morally superior to this man. Paul's judging this man in the same way as our first scenario with the late employee. He is judging him as someone who is in a position of authority over him. He is judging him as someone who is required to apply the law to this man's behavior and as someone who has to answer to God if he doesn't. Paul's not gleeful about it. He doesn't think this man is beneath him or that he is less worthy of God's love. Paul is judging him but he's not being judgmental towards him. Because this man is claiming to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. And the Corinthians are not willing to judge him, probably because they're afraid of being judgmental. And so Paul has to come along and say, look, there is right belief and right behavior for someone who is in the kingdom of God. And even though I'm not with you, I'm passing judgment on this man in the name of our Lord Jesus because his behavior is not consistent with his profession to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Now, again, let me remind us, behavior does not make us a citizen or keep us in the kingdom, but repentance is the fruit of true faith. And this man's life does not display Repentance. No one is supposed to be happy about this. We're not supposed to think we're better than this man, but we must draw a firm line between what citizens of the kingdom believe and how they know they should behave with the kind of beliefs and actions that lead to hell. We have to do this. In fact, it is unloving not to do this. Listen to the reason Paul gives for why he is judging this man. He says, hand this man over to Satan, which I believe means to declare to the church and the watching world that he's no longer a member of the church at Corinth, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. See, we don't make a distinction between the lifestyle of a kingdom citizen and the lifestyle that leads to hell. If we don't do that, we will have failed to love our fellow brothers and sisters. But I'm afraid our churches, we've been infected by what the world says, do not judge means, that we're afraid to even judge how Paul is judging here or to judge how that boss was required to judge. And we are actually not loving our brothers and sisters if we do not judge in this way. This kind of judgment is meant to give them the opportunity to repent and believe. And our failure to do this Let's them go on living on the road to hell. Now, they may be a true believer. 
because we cannot judge someone's heart. But there's no evidence of repentance in their life. And we are called to go to them and to remove the speck from their eye. And we're going to actually talk about next week what that looks like. But we can never judge someone like this from a place of moral superiority. In Romans 1, Paul gives a whole list of sins that he says non-Christians are prone to, including immorality, gossip, slander, greed, disobedience, basically everything. And then he says this, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. See, the reason we can never claim moral superiority is because we are all just as guilty as everyone else. And this verse here, Paul, is using the word judgment in the exact same way that Jesus is. Yes, there will be times when we have to evaluate the rightness or the wrongness of someone else's beliefs or behavior. And we may even have to pass judgment on them and the way that Paul did in 1 Corinthians 5, the way our boss did with his employee, but we can never feel like we're morally superior to them. As soon as we think we are, we're actually condemning ourselves because we all do the same things. This is why Jesus goes on to say, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. See, as soon as we judge someone as if we're morally superior to them, as if we somehow have the right to condemn them as failing to achieve the greatness that we have achieved, we have put ourselves in a dangerous situation because we are guilty of the same exact thing. Like Jesus said to the Pharisees who wanted to condemn the woman caught in adultery, he says, you who are without sin, why don't you cast the first stone? Right? See, people who live in glass houses shouldn't be throwing rocks at other people who live in glass houses. If we look at the drunkard or the racist or the porn addict as somehow being a worse sinner than us, we've failed to see that we are guilty of the same things. We all alter our mood with food or television or social media or work, not just because we're hard workers, but because we like the way it feels to work. It's a good high with less destructive consequences, but the same sin. We're all guilty of being partial to one group or another. We may not be racists, but being partial to one group or another is the same exact sin. And every single one of us are sexually broken. So if we condemn someone else from a place of moral superiority, that must mean that we think that somehow we have met God's standard in that area ourselves. And so if we take the measuring rod and apply it to them, watch out, Jesus says. Because how are we going to measure up when God takes that same measuring rod and measures it against us? So how do we know then when we're being sinfully judgmental, how do we know when we've crossed over from rightfully evaluating someone else's beliefs or behaviors in order to love them well 
to judging them as a moral superior? Well, there are two ways. First, we judge them according to God's law as if we're somehow not guilty or at least not as guilty of that sin. Now, none of us are ever going to come right out and say that this is what we're doing. Uh, We probably don't even notice that we're doing it, but if we find out that someone has committed adultery and our response is disgust and contempt for that person, we've sinfully judged them. We've forgotten that we do the same thing. And I know the pushback to that is, well, I've never committed adultery. I would never, I would never do that. I would never get addicted to pornography. But the question is, why? Why would you never do that? Or why haven't you done that? Is it because we're better than that person? Or is it simply because of the grace of God? You see, all of us have the seed for that sin in our hearts. Jesus said, as we just read, that if you even look at someone else with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. So the only reason that seed hasn't flowered like maybe it has in this other person's life, is simply because God has been gracious to us. We are no better than that person. We do the same things. If we look at a homeless person and think, they're just getting what they deserve, we've sinfully judged them, again, because there but for the grace of God go I. Do we recognize that we too could be living under a bridge if not for the grace of God? If we go into the voting booth to vote, even if the policy we're voting for is objectively the most true, the most beautiful, and the most good policy, but we're voting that way so those people will stop polluting my country with their evil ways, we have sinfully judged them. And we've forgotten that our judgmentalism pollutes our society as much or maybe even more than what those people are doing. Judgmentalism, right, that our media fuels constantly might actually be the most corrosive substance in our country, more so than whatever policy you're against on the right or the left. We look at the overweight person and judge them as a glutton, but we look at the fit person and judge them for being vain. We look at the poor person and judge them for being lazy and irresponsible. We look at the wealthy person and judge them as being selfish and greedy. We look at people with different theological views than us and judge them for being unbiblical, or we judge them for disregarding science and modern scholarship. We judge those who struggle as sinners, and we judge those who don't seem to struggle as self-righteous. We could go on, right? But we all know this is us. This is us. The second way we judge people as if we're morally superior is when we just make up new laws that aren't even in the Bible, as if somehow keeping those laws matter. And we do this all day long, every day. Look at the way she dresses. She's too short or tall or pretty to dress like that. 
I can't believe she let her hair go gray. I can't believe they remodeled their house and didn't get new furniture. Right? We do these things. Why doesn't he quit that job? He could make so much more money somewhere else. You see, it's ridiculous. But this is what we do. And it's actually more ridiculous because with these new laws that we make up, we don't even have any right to evaluate somebody by those laws. It's just some dumb law that we've made up. Friends, this is us. We are critical, judgmental people. I tried on Friday. So I'm going to try to go without judging anyone else, right? And then after work, my wife's like, hey, why don't you stop and pick up ice from the Dollar General? So I walked into the Dollar General and proceeded to judge people that I saw there. Not only are we guilty of the same things we judge other people of doing, but we judge people's looks, their motives, their decisions. And we would never want them to hold us to the same standard. And it's so easy to explain away all the things that we do and yet hold other people to the fire. But Paul says this, listen. He says, therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes and he will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Notice, notice Paul actually assumes that when that judgment comes, we're going to receive praise from God. Because only God knows the heart. He's the one who will bring to light what is hidden. He will expose the motives of the heart so we don't have to. We don't have to play God. Which means we get to think the best of each other. Since God is the judge, we're free to just love one another. Because love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It, is all, it always protects, it always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Notice love always trusts. I like the way the ESV puts it. It says, love believes all things. Don't you want to be the kind of person who believes all things? The kind of person who's not critical, who gives others the benefit of the doubt, who is patient and kind, who doesn't hold on to grudges. The kind of person who, when we do evaluate someone else's beliefs and behaviors, we do so without feeling morally superior we do so out of love, with a desire to help them be conformed to the likeness of Christ. But instead, our judgmental hearts produce gossip and slander and retaliation. We give people the cold shoulder. We push them away. We reject people because they don't think like us, act like us, vote like us. Or we just reject them because they're not as funny or interesting or smart as we like. And people feel it. We feel it. We've all been under the judgmental gaze of someone else. 
If we considered all the ways people could judge us and probably are judging us, we might never leave our house. In fact, some people don't. But you know, you know the person who is least likely to be judged by another person? It's that person who is kind. It's that person who, when you see them, you know they think the best of you. It's that person who smiles and is, is happy to see you and is, and is not thinking that they're better than you, right? And we all, I think, I believe we all long to be that person. And Jesus gives us this teaching. He gives us this teaching to stir in us a desire to be who he says we already are because we are united to Christ by faith. When Jesus says, do not judge or you too will be judged, for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. He's not saying that we have to give up our judgmental ways in order to be saved. He's not saying that as long as we don't judge other people, we don't have to be worried about being judged by him. He's not saying that. He's not saying that we earn heaven by not judging people. He's talking about what causes us. He's not talking about what causes us to avoid being judged. He's talking about the evidence that grows in the life of someone who knows they deserve judgment, but who also knows God is not judging them. He's pointing us to the ground or the foundation that frees us from God's judgment. He's talking about the consequences that emerge out of the heart of someone who's been freed by God and forgiven by God when we know we should have been condemned. People who don't judge are people who are amazed that God is not judging them. Even though they do the same things, even though there is a giant plank sticking out of their eye that does deserve God's judgment, they know that God has shown them mercy in Christ. God is the lawgiver and the judge, and yet in the person of Jesus Christ, God judged himself in our place. Jesus is the only one who could ever claim to be morally superior to any, any of us, and yet he let himself be measured. How we deserve to be measured. And that measurement that we deserve to be applied to us was applied to Christ. And he suffered and he paid the penalty in our place. And when we see how much mercy God has shown us, it opens our hearts to be merciful to everyone else. Remember the Beatitudes, blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. Another way to say this would be, blessed are the non-judgmental for they will not be judged. Forgive and it will be forgiven to you. It's the poor in spirit who realize they have nothing to offer God to earn his favor, who realize that all they have to bring to this relationship is their sin, and yet God has paid the penalty for their sin in their place out of sheer grace. And it's the grace of God that turns us into merciful, forgiving, non-judgmental people. That's just what it does. And all we have to do to avoid judgment ourselves has turned to God in repentance, trusting that Jesus has taken our judgment in our place. And that he wanted to. And that he died for me personally. And that he's loved us since before the foundation of the world. So if the Buddhist 
says, I thought you weren't supposed to judge me. We can actually say to him, I'm not. I don't think I'm better than you. The only reason I know that Jesus has saved me from my sins is because somebody was brave enough to tell me. And I want you to know that you can know forgiveness and grace that I have experienced in Christ. When our coworker who's cheating on her husband says, do you think I'm doing something wrong? And we say, I do. And she says, I thought you weren't supposed to judge me. We can actually say, I'm not. I'm not judging you. I don't think I'm better than you. I, I understand. I understand the temptation to find somebody else. I understand the temptation that maybe somebody else's arms could be the arms I've been looking for my whole life. But I found the arms of Jesus. I found the arms that you're actually looking for and that person's arms. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we recognize that we are judgmental. And yet you took our judgment in our place. Father, thank you for this word from you that stirs in us a longing to be who we already are because of our faith, because we abide in the vine. Help us to live into that reality, God, more and more. Help us to be bold enough to share with others your evaluation of their beliefs and behavior without feeling morally superior to them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.